when I was a kid, Saturdays were always special because Saturdays was uh, when you got up and watched cartoons. You know, Saturday morning cartoons was the only thing back then on television. And I would get up a little early before mom and dad would get up and sneak into the living room and turn on the TV real quietly because there was an old TV series when I was a kid that I really loved and it was called Superman. And and it starred George Reeves and, you know, I, I remember as a kid thinking, wow, if you could just be, if I could just be Superman. Now, I go back and look at the series now and think, you know, George Reeves didn't look much like a superhero. I mean, when you go back and look at him, you're like, wow. But then when I got a little bit older, there was a series that came on regularly on TV, another superhero by the name of Batman. I don't know how many of you remember Adam West, but it was a series that would come on each week, and at the end of each series, it would leave you with a cliffhanger. You know, what's coming up next? Is this the end of the dynamic duo? You know, I think about superheroes today. When I was a kid, I mean, any of them could save the world. Today, it takes all of them. I mean, if you watched a superhero movie lately, you've got to have the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Captain America. You've got to have all of them there if you're now going to save the world. You know, we all like superheroes. If you'd lived in the first century you would have heard stories of superheroes, just like you do today. Probably the biggest one in the first century when Jesus was a kid, and I suspect he heard stories about him, was a man by the name of Alexander the Great. His name was actually Alexander the Third, But Alexander the Third doesn't sound so great, does it? He took his first a military responsibility when he was 16 years old. He had been studying under the great philosopher uh, Aristotle, and at 16, his dad said, all right, you've, you've been educated enough. I'm going to give you a command of this set of troops. And he went and basically kept the peace in what is today Istanbul, Turkey, back then known as Byzantium. By the time he was 20 years old, He was king of Greece. His father had been assassinated and he took control of the army. And at age 20, he began to conquer the ancient world. He took what is today modern-day Turkey, swept into the Middle East, went down even to Jerusalem, took over Babylon, went into Persia. The next thing you know, he's in Afghanistan. I mean, we're still dealing with Afghanistan today. He conquered it some 2,300 years ago. Went as far as India before his troops finally said, Alexander's enough. And so they turned back, and at age 32, he caught some type of virus and died in Babylon. The story of Alexander was told, I'm sure, around campfire after campfire, the great superhero of Greece. And then in the first century, when Jesus was a little boy, the stories were already being told about a man by the name of, well, at first his name was Octavius. Octavius happened to be the great nephew 
of a man by the name of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, when he died in his will, had said, I want my great-nephew to be my adopted son. And so Octavius became heir to Julius Caesar. Well, he, along with two other generals, one being very familiar, Mark Anthony, they, they basically had a civil war with the men who had assassinated his adopted father, Julius Caesar. And before long, they were dividing up the Roman Empire. But you know, when you start dividing up empires, the next day, you know, you're fighting one another. And sure enough, Octavius here decided he wanted to control all the Roman Empire. And so he and Mark Anthony began to go at each other. And you may recall that Mark Anthony had a girlfriend. Her name was Cleopatra. I mean, movies have made her famous, but she was even famous back then. And they combined their forces thinking they could defeat Octavius, but they were mistaken. And he became the first emperor of Rome. You see, Octavius wasn't a good enough name. I mean, it was a a family name. I mean, it was an all right name. But, you know, when you're emperor of the Roman Empire, you need a better name than Octavius. And so he took on the name Augustus. Augustus Caesar. And, and, and you're talking about a superhero. He was such a superhero that most of us don't realize that we still honor him every year. I mean, have you ever wondered where the name of the month August came from? It's this guy right here. He was so famous, they changed the calendar and named a month of the year after him. And then, of course, he made sure that his father was honored, and so we also honored Julius Caesar in the month of July. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus comes along and looks at the superheroes of his day, and he says to his apostles something interesting. Notice here in Matthew chapter 20, Do you want the kingdom... Uh, run like the Romans run their kingdom. Now, this is from the Passion Translation. And I love the Passion Translation sometimes because even though that phrase Romans, that word is not in there, that's the point that Jesus is making. Their rulers have great power over the people, but God the Father doesn't play by the Roman rules. In other words, being a superhero is not the way that Octavius did it. It's not the way that Alexander the Great did it. This is the kingdom's logic. Whoever wants to become great must first make himself a servant. And then as if to make sure we get it, notice verse 27. Whoever wants to be first must bind himself as a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when Jesus came along, and of course 2,000 years later, we look at Jesus and we think here is the ultimate superhero. But he didn't play by the rules of the rest of the superheroes of the world. Paul would pick up on that himself. He writes to the church at Philippi, and you've got to appreciate this little letter. Sometimes I think we don't realize just how incredible these epistles of Paul are. Notice here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. You see, Philippi was a different kind of city. 
You know, uh, I've got William Murphy visiting with us this morning. He's, he's from Northside. Northside's closed down right now because of, of the virus. But uh, he's, he's from near where, well, where Tony was raised, uh, Boonville, Mississippi. And he's got an aunt that lives in a little place called Kossuth. And this morning we were talking about the church at Kossuth. Now, if I say the church at Kossuth, none of you probably even know what in the world we're talking about. Little bitty community outside of Corinth, Mississippi. That wasn't the case with ancient Philippi. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi was a city that had been founded because when the Roman legions would begin retiring, the Roman government couldn't pay pensions. And so if you had served in the Roman military, you didn't get a monthly pension. Instead, what they gave you was land. And so they had marked out this territory in northern uh, Greece, southern Macedonia, and they named it Philippi after, of all people, Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon. And Philippi became this Roman colony made up of ex-Roman legionnaires. I mean, a city full of ex-soldiers and their families, if you can imagine that. And Paul writes to this city. And and, and notice what he says, and I want to kind of add to it here. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants. That word in the Greek is not the word servants. The word servant is actually down here. We use the word deacon, diakonos, or in this case, diakonoi. That's the word for servants. The word up here instead is the Greek word doulos, and it literally means slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to a community made up of ancient soldiers, aging soldiers who had enslaved so many people, and yet here's Paul saying, guess what we are? We're slaves. We're slaves of one known as the Messiah, Jesus. And he's writing to this little church, a church that he loved dearly, because here's a church that when he first went there, there's no Jews there. I don't know if you remember in the book of Acts, he goes and he finds out that there's a group of people who are meeting out by a river. And so he goes out there and he preaches, and the first convert is a lady by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple. He eventually converts the jailer there in Philippi when he and, and, and Silas are locked up in jail there. And so he ends up being able to convert him and his family and starting the church there. This church had been a helpful church to Paul. They'd sent him money from time to time to help him with his expenses. And and now Paul's in prison, and they had sent money to him while he was in prison. But in in, in coming of that gift came word that the church there was having some minor problems. Two sisters. A sister by the name of Euodia and a sister by the name of Syntyche. Matriarchs of the church had gotten at odds with each other. I mean, they were in a conflict with one another. And let me tell you something. You can have two elders go at each other, but they can't compare to two elderesses going at each other, if you know what I mean. I mean, all churches have what I call matriarchs. It's these ladies that wield enormous influence in the church. And in this church at Philippi, two of them were at odds with each other. You can see the Sunday assembly as people would come in. And you could tell by where they sat, which side they were on. And so Paul, as he writes this letter, says, Can I urge you 
Can I urge you to quit thinking about your interest? Can I urge you to begin to think about God's people as a whole? And more than that, can I urge you to be like Jesus, the Messiah? So in your relationships, and boy, he's got Euodia Seneca in his mind as he says this. In your relationships with one another, can you have the mindset of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ? Paul would be impacted by Jesus' example. You know, Paul was one chosen out of season. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, going to persecute, of all things, Jesus' followers. He would eventually be baptized, and then he would go into Arabia, where I believe for three years he had a very special education given to him by Jesus himself. He would oftentimes say, what I have is directly from the Lord. Somewhere, somehow, Jesus had communicated who he was and what he taught to Paul himself. And so Paul saw Jesus as kind of this ultimate example for all of us to follow. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he said to the Corinthians, Listen, follow me, follow my example. Why? Because I'm following the example of the Messiah. Peter would say the same thing. Turn over to his first epistle in chapter 2. He's writing to slaves, urging slaves to, to relate to their master in a way that honors God. To this you were called, this, these slaves. You're called to honor Jesus because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example. Look at how he was treated and how he responded to people. On the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. So Paul begins in Philippians 2 by saying, we need to follow the example of Jesus. You see, if you need a superhero to put your faith in, here's the kind of superhero we need. He begins in this beautiful poem. It's a poem you can look at the Greek and tell that it's something special, perhaps a song that the early church was singing. And notice, he says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, let me say a word about both what Paul and what John says here. John will say the same thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the things by the time you get pretty good peace into the early church is the church is grappling with this concept of Jesus being more than simply a descendant of David, someone anointed by God. They're beginning to realize he is in fact deity in human flesh. Now a lot of us think that's what Peter meant when he said you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You need to understand that the phrase Son of God in the first century simply meant King of Israel. It comes from Psalm chapter 2. It's, it's basically a coronation psalm. It's not saying that the King is deity. He's simply saying he's like the Son of God. And so when Peter confessed Jesus as being the Son of God, he had no concept of the second member of the, of the Godhead. Not at that point in his life. It was only after the resurrection that the apostles began to put two and two together. And then the gift of the Holy Spirit helped them to realize, wait a minute, the one we were following 
Can you imagine when it dawns on Peter that he had literally pulled God himself aside and rebuked him in Caesarea Philippi? You see, you don't rebuke God if you know he's God. And Peter wouldn't have done it either. It took them a while to get there. But Paul is among and John are among the first to say, listen, he wasn't just human. He was somehow human and divine at the same time. But his equality with God wasn't something that he held on to. He didn't grasp it and say, I'm God, I'm not going down there to earth. I'm not going down there to live among those people. That's what, not what he did at all. Instead, notice the text here. <coughs> For you have experienced the extravagant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was infinitely rich, he impoverished himself for our sake, so that by his poverty we become, could become rich beyond measure. He says, do you realize who he was and what he gave up to come to be with us? You see, Jesus' deity wasn't about, was about giving, not about giving. It wasn't about him holding on. It was about him pouring out. And so the question this morning, is your life about what's in it for you or are you about what you can do for others? It's a question of who's going to be a superhero and an important one. Rather, he made himself nothing. Literally, he poured himself out, abandoning the riches of heaven, the glory of heaven. And notice the text there. He says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Picture, if you would, Jesus in the presence of God as the eternal word with all the glory that went with that. And then this. <coughs> you don't empty yourself more than when you become a baby. You see, the baby that was in the manger wasn't omniscient. He had left that in heaven. He wasn't omnipotent. He had left that in heaven. Those attributes of God that he, he willingly gave up, did not grasp them, but gave them up, emptying himself. Now, was he divine? Of course he was divine. But he had made himself human in order to relate to us. By taking the very nature, again, that word servant there is the word slave. He became a slave for us. John 13, 3 through 4, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet. But what does he do? He, get up, he gets up, he takes off his cloak, he takes a towel. That word towel there carries with it the idea of being a slave. And he then begins to go around and wash the disciples' feet feet. That's what a superhero does. Because he was about serving, not about being served. And so we have to ask ourselves, is your life, my life, about your needs being served or how you can serve the needs of others? Not that we don't have needs that need to be met, but I have found that when I meet June's needs, all at once, somehow, amazingly, she meets my needs by serving one another. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. One of the things about Jesus is he knew he had to be like us. And so he came in human form. Notice Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them. He wanted to experience what you and I experience. He wanted to be tempted in every way we're tempted so that he could make atonement for the sins of the people knowing what we go through. That's what Jesus did for us. And then something that I think blows our minds, he became obedient. Well, I mean, that's not difficult for Jesus. You have to understand obedience. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but obedience is not obedience unless you have a conflict of wills. That's only when obedience becomes obedience. When my dad used to say to me, Leslie, get in there to the kitchen table and get you something to eat. You think I had a problem with that? You think I went, I think I'm going to disobey my dad. I don't think I want to go in there and have fried catfish and hush puppies and french fries. You see, when you're given a commandment that you have no problem with, it's not obedience. It's an agreement that what you've been asked to do is actually good for you. And yet Jesus became obedient to death. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over their officials. That's not my way of doing it. My way of doing it is by submitting. And the Hebrew writer says, though he was son, he learned obedience for what he, from what he suffered. You see, when Jesus went into Gethsemane and said, Father, if there's any other will, any other way, I mean, I don't want to drink this cup. But he willingly obeyed. And in so doing, he died on the cross. Last week, I was watching an old movie named Spartacus. And uh, it, was, it was made back, I think, in the 50s, maybe early 60s. And, and in the scene, Kurt Douglas plays Spartacus. And he's crucified at the very end of the movie. And I'm sitting there watching him hang up on the cross. And when I looked at him, I thought, that's not what crucifixion is. I know Hollywood had to clean it up, but that's not what Jesus went through. He wasn't hanging clothed with his feet dangling up there with no nails in his hands. That's not what crucifixion was. You see, what Jesus experienced was vastly different. His deity was about obedience, not about dominance. And so we have to ask ourselves, is your life, my life, about power, influence, or is it how we can be more obedient, not only to him, but to one another? And so he ends by saying, therefore God gave to him the highest place and Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. He says, listen, God exalted him. Why? Because he had humbled himself. James, Jesus' half-brother, would write years later saying, listen, I can tell you from personal experience. Humble yourself and he'll lift you up. He did my older brother Jesus. And then notice that last, and gave him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus... God's son is being born. And he says to both Mary and to Joseph, here's the name you're to give him. You give him the name Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. You see, when you're proud of your name, you give your name to your son. That's what you do. And God gave his son his name. Yahweh, Yahweh saves. That at the name 
of Yeshua. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so simply put, have you confessed Jesus as Lord? See, we all will one day. The choice is, will we do it willingly or at the judgment day? And it's our choice. We, again, are not offering, offering an invitation song. But if you have any needs, I'm available, our elders are available, please come down and let me know. And we'll be happy to, to serve you. At this time, let's all stand. Blake's going to come and lead us in a very special song as we're dismissed this morning.